Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel and ITL Coaching and Performance. This is George. Patrick and I appreciate your joining with us once again here on the podcast. Wanted to mention a couple of quick things to you before we got going. First is an announcement that I first made last week at the start of the podcast, and I wanted to remind everybody of, uh, and that is an upcoming event with one of our sponsors, Blue Pineapple Travel and Trek Travel uh, on February 23rd. At 6 o'clock here in Marietta, Georgia at Beyond Chiropractic. We shared it on our Facebook page, and of course you can check it out on Blue Pineapple Travel's Facebook page as well. Uh, Trek Travel, as you might be aware, books cycling vacations around the world. A lot of them are in Europe, but a lot of them are in national parks here in the United States. Um, and this event is going to have a representative from Track Travel who's flying in specifically to, to have this event, um, talking about what Track Travel offers, and then also talking about the benefits of partnering with or booking with Trek Travel through a uh, local service provider, a local travel provider, uh, that being our sponsor, Blue Pineapple Travel. Um, not only can Blue Pineapple Travel do sort of everything around the trip, they can get you to the starting point and, of course, get you home from the starting point. Uh, they also provide sort of a concierge service while you're there. If anything comes up, anything unforeseen, of course, you have a travel agent that can work on all that stuff for you. Uh, you'd be supporting a local business, of course, by booking it through uh, Blue Pineapple Travel. Um, and there's no cost to you. There's no extra bonus cost. As a matter of fact, there's a discount that Trek Travel is offering for people who book through uh, through Blue Pineapple Travel. So if you want to learn more about those cycling vacations they offer, if you want to cycle some of the climbs in the Giro d'Italia or in the Tour de France, uh, by all means, uh, look up about that February 23rd special information session at Beyond Chiropractic in Marietta, Georgia at 6 o'clock. Uh, if you need information about it, you can email me, george at itlcoaching.com. So you can email Patrick at Patrick at ITLcoaching.com or email us both at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. The other thing that I wanted to mention here before we got going is about a new segment we're going to be doing here in 2019. And we wanted to put out a general call to anyone who might be interested in contributing to the podcast as part of this segment. What we're going to be doing is interviewing people who have a big race coming up, a race that you've targeted, a race that you have specifically trained for, that you've been looking forward to. Um, and we're going to talk to you for about 25 to 30 minutes prior to the start of the event, prior to your leaving and going off and experiencing the event about the training that you've done and stuff like that. And then we'll talk to you again after we've done the event and we'll hear a little bit about how the event went and whether it lived up to your expectations and whether you met your goals and all that sort of thing. Um, and then we're going to combine those together in into, uh, into single podcasts. And so we're hoping to do that about four to six times throughout the course of the year this year. So over the course of the next few months, or really over the course of this year, if you have a big target event, something that you're excited about, something that you've been focusing on, um, something you've been training specifically for, and you'd like to be a part of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast in that capacity, let us know. Uh, we would love to talk to you and love to feature you uh, in that segment coming up. Again, George at itlcoaching.com, Patrick at itlcoaching.com, or pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for joining us, everybody, and let's get on with the show. Hello, 
everybody. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. This is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. We appreciate your joining with us once again. We are kind of back to normal here, back to news and research, right? That's right. It, we had a bit of a you know, change in our format as we were heading into the new year and, and reviewing the old year. But now we're back to you know news and research followed by a week of topic. Right on, right on. And we appreciate you joining with us, everybody. Um, do you know, Patrick, I'm totally springing this on you. Do you know what the number one most listened to episode of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast was last year? Not a clue. <laughs> Brandon Hudgens uh, interview. No, good guess, but no. It was actually the uh, the the uh, midweek podcast we did on our hot takes on Elliot Kipchoge's marathon record. Interesting. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if that's also because it was our shortest podcast of the year. <laughs> I'm going to try not to put too much thought into that one, um, but I did think that, that that was funny and that was interesting. So what you're saying is we need to talk less. Well, maybe we need to talk less or maybe we need to talk more about Elliot Kipchoge, which is fortunate because we're going to be talking a lot about him today. I know you're shocked. I, not shocked in the slightest. Right. Ready to go. All right. Very good. So, But I, we did also find, and I thought this was interesting as well, that, that um, our news and research podcast had slightly higher listenership than, than our topic podcast. Um, and, and for the most part, uh, loyal listeners, you, you, you listened to us regardless of what it was we were talking about. Um, but I thought it was interesting that news and research, I, I would have thought that news and research interviews and, and um, uh, topics that, that news and research might have been the lowest. And in fact, it was the highest of the three. Yeah, that's that's certainly interesting. Um, I think part of it is I've heard a lot of people say that they really enjoyed the research section, that they thought it was interesting to hear kind of the different little insights that new research is bringing about, you know, whatever it is, you know, like sleep, for example. Not that we mentioned <laughs> that ever. Um, so it, it's pretty interesting. I, I didn't expect that either when we first came up with this format and started this format. I did not expect that to be the most popular. Right on, right on. Well, we, we will be generally continuing this format throughout the course of this year. Now, we're going to be adding one thing this year um, that I talked about in the introduction to the podcast, um, but it bears repeating here. Um, we are going to be doing periodically, maybe six times, four to six times throughout the course of the year, we're going to be doing an interview with an athlete who's targeting a race that they haven't done before, uh, and they're gearing a lot. Of their, it could be that they have done before, uh, but they're gearing a lot of their training towards that. We're going to be talking to them before the race, and then we're going to be talking to them after the race about how the race actually went. And so, by all means, if you fit that profile um, and and uh, you're willing to be interviewed by, by us to talk about this particular race and, and why you chose it and why it's meaningful to you and how you've geared your training towards it and what your overall experience and expectations are going to be, um, and then you're willing to talk to us afterwards about the race, regardless of how it went, whether it met your expectations or not. Um, please reach out to us, George at ITLcoaching.com, Patrick at ITLcoaching.com, uh, and let us know. Um, I think that's going to be cool. I'm looking forward to that. Are you? I, I, absolutely. It'll also yeah. be good. I, like We've had a few folks like Lauren Fogarty um, and Nicole DiMercurio talk about you know, their races when they've, they've had yeah. like, the Boston Marathon. And us. Uh, but it's, it'd be good to bring in, you know, additional perspectives, especially, you know, to hear someone else's race reports outside of our own race reports. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that too. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. Well, let's hop back into the, the, the whole news and research thing here. It's been a couple of weeks since we talked about news. It's been a while here and it's funny cause there was all these like news stories kind of piling up, um, that we probably could have talked about if we would have been doing it every other week. Uh, you know, give me an example. You probably heard that there was a, there was a hitman in Manchester 
Mr. England, who was uh, caught for uh, for doing a mob hit by the GPS data on his watch. Did you read the details of that one? I did not read the details. I saw the headline and thought, that's all I need to know. This is beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, here's what's funny is that they the investigators suspected him of this particular murder. Um, and when they were looking into him and trying to research him a little bit more, they found a picture of him running a 10K. He was a good runner. He ran like 47 minutes for 10K. Um, and they noticed in the picture that he was wearing a Garmin Forerunner watch. And so they got a search warrant for his house to go get that watch specifically. And they went and they got that watch. They went back through the data and they found that there was a particular activity that he did that was about a month before the murder of this guy that they suspected that he had murdered, where he left from his house going 12 miles an hour. So they, thought, they figured he was on a bike. And then he got to the field right behind the house where the murder had actually taken place, and he slowed down to three miles an hour. So in other words, he got off his bike and started walking. And then he stopped for eight minutes. And so like surveyed the field and all that sort of thing. Then he got back on his bike and 12 miles per hour, he rode back home again. Um, and they believe that he was basically surveying the place and they think that he was actually mapping out his escape route. They figured that when he committed the murder, that's he went through the field and that's the escape route that he followed home, either on a bike or on foot. <laughs> that is incredible. And just to clarify too, he didn't start his watch. So, his watch yeah. was just tracking him because, I mean, it's tracking us. I don't. Yeah, get, good question. I don't know actually. Yeah, was 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 he was he logging the activity or was it just you know? Surely he was smart enough not to hit start on his watch. Yeah, I, but he was still wearing it though. I mean, how smart was he? Um, I mean, he's a professional, I guess. But but yeah, I, I shouldn't be making light of it, perhaps. But um, but it, it, maybe it's worth pointing out that the 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 victim of the of the murder was was another well known uh, gang boss. Um, but anyway, um, and then you probably also heard that that Zap fitness got a new sponsor um, slightly different note by the way yeah 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 good segue there right <laughs> um <laughs> the zap fitness announced in uh in december uh and zap fitness of course you'll recall we've interviewed pete ray we've interviewed nicole de mercurio that's the uh the professional running group based in blowing rock north carolina um but zap fitness announced in uh december that they were uh, parting ways with their longtime sponsor, Reebok, um, which was not a big surprise, I think. We had talked last year about how Reebok is starting their own track club with Justin Knight as the, their main person, and it's called the Reebok Boston Track Club, but they're actually going to be based out of Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, and so it's not a surprise that, that Reebok's going to pour all of their, their resources into their own training group. That's cool. Um, and it was very amicable, by the way. Um, both Reebok and Zap Fitness released uh, statements where they talked about how much they respected each other and, and how they had a mutually beneficial relationship. But then they announced yesterday, Zap did, because they had some, some athletes today running the Houston Marathon with the new sponsor. They announced who their new sponsor was. And it was... On running. Yeah, on cloud, on running. And so, so yeah, we'll be interested to see uh, how they do. I, I'm actually super curious about that. Um, mm -hmm. I, have, I have found On to be sort of an interesting company yeah. um and for those you don't know on running they're the ones who who literally the bottoms of their shoes have holes in them um, mm -hmm. i don't really even know how to describe it yeah they're definitely one of the more innovative companies they're definitely you know you see this in a lot of different spaces or a lot of different markets where when you're kind of the, the new guy on the block you can come in with a new idea a new innovation because you have nothing to lose so to speak and so they have a bit more of that mentality than some of the, the bigger dogs out there. So I thought it was a very interesting choice. Uh, they're clearly trying to grow their brand, grow their you know their rec their brand recognition, their brand awareness among the running community. 
Um, in the United States specifically. And within the United States specifically. And also, I mean, they're definitely more of a premium brand, right? They're not trying to, you know, cover up the shelves of Foot Locker, so to speak, or of, of Sports Authority. I mean, I know Sports Authority isn't around anymore, but, you know, your, your kind of mall um, outlet store or I mall agree, yeah. um, convenience store. Um, but uh, anyways, so th- they make a lot of sense because they are someone that, that – w- they're a brand that wants to be kind of recognized as a premium brand. They want people to associate them with a high level of performance. So it, it makes sense in a lot of ways for them to partner with Zap Fitness. Yeah, for sure. I've been kind of fascinated by them. Um, everything I've read about their shoes, though, is that even though they're 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 light, that they're very responsive. And and yeah. responsive in shoe parlance means hard. <laughs> yeah, and so they're not very very cushiony, um, and so so I'll, I'll I'll be interested to see um, um, well not only of course what what people uh, at Zap say about it, but but um, if anybody ends up buying a pair, what you know by all means reach out to us and let us know how you like on um, Nick Simmons, um, who I think we've talked about on here before, who is one of the best 800 meter runners in the United States over the course of the past decade or so. He retired um, about two years ago, um, and he poured himself into his new business, which is Run Gum. Um, mm-hmm. and so some of y'all might've used run gum before it's caffeinated gum. Um, and, uh, you can find it in a lot of specialty stores. Um, and I think they actually just started going into target or Dick's or some big box store, but anyway, um, and, uh, he was sponsored by Nike and then by Brooks for a long time. And when he retired, he said, well, now I want to try and run marathons, um, just for fun. Um, and he's looking to like break three hours for a marathon, which, you know, that's a great time, obviously, but for a guy who is literally a, a world championships medalist in the 800, I mean, you know, you're talking about that's not quite the same. Right. Um, but but he said that since he was no longer had a shoe sponsor, all of these shoe companies were sending him shoes. And he said he opened the ones from OnCloud, and he said that they were like works of art because they're, they're just so beautiful and so innovatively designed, and they're so colorful, and yeah. And so, anyway... Um, yeah, by all means, if, if, if you love on, by re- reach out to us and let us know what you think. But uh, we'll definitely be following up with our friends at Zap Fitness over the course of the next short while and seeing what they say about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. Um, one other kind of you know piece of bonus research here. Uh, some of y'all might have seen that, that there's been some recent research about inorganic phosphates. Um, and I don't want to go into the research too much, but I will say that um, one of the reasons why uh, most of us try to avoid very highly processed foods is because, generally speaking, in the processing process, um, there tends to be a lot of bonus stuff added to them, a lot of chemicals added to it, right? right? Uh, that'll increase its shelf life and stuff like that. Um, and one thing that is often added to foods in order to increase their shelf life or to like shredded cheese in order to keep it from caking together are various inorganic phosphates. Uh, and if you look on the, the, the labels of your food, uh, it's like calcium phosphate, disodium phosphate, monopotassium phosphate, and stuff like that. Now, phosphorus is an important uh, micronutrient, and, and you do need it, but it occurs naturally in varying foods, and most of us get enough of it through fruits and vegetables and lean meats and all that sort of thing. Um, those are organic phosphates, but inorganic phosphates, these chemicals that are often added to processed food, uh, there's some recent research on it that shows that it actually slows your metabolism a lot um, and that it can sap even some of your motivation. Um, and so yet another reason to, to, if you're an endurance athlete, to try and avoid those kind of boxed foods, those, those really highly processed foods, uh, cereals, et cetera. Um, thoughts on that real quick? Uh, nothing other than it just kind of continues to confirm what we know, and that's that 
nutrition really does have an impact not only on your physical well-being but also kind of your, yeah. your mental and emotional yeah. well-being yeah uh, i don't want to get too you know far down into that rabbit hole because i mean i do enjoy a coke every now and again and you know and sure, yeah other yeah things. and actually and actually they're they're in colas yeah right so i don't want to you know turn into kind of a, a nutrition nazi so to speak but i do think it is good to be aware that what we put into our bodies does affect our mood absolutely it does affect our energy level yeah. um and it's not always a a, a direct one-to-one correlation, right? You can have a Coke and feel good for 20 minutes, but then there's a crash at the end or there's, you know, um, maybe some, some effects later down the road. For sure. You know, I, I, I've talked before on this podcast that the first time I ever saw a nutritionist was way back in, I want to say 2010, and I saw a nutritionist here in Atlanta, uh, and her name was Alana Katz. Um, and I've sent other people to her over the course of the past eight years. She was very responsive, and, and I, I like Alana a lot. Um, and she changed lots of things about the way that I ate. But the most significant thing that she changed was that she, she encouraged me to eat fewer processed foods. And me, coming from the 1990s, I was coming very much from that fat versus carbohydrate paradigm. Yep. And if it had high carbohydrates, it doesn't matter if it was processed or not. What mattered was how high the carbohydrates were and how low the fat were. And so in that paradigm, and we've talked about this before, um, uh, lean meat was not as good for you as pretzels. Um, and in retrospect, um, that seems kind of ridiculous um, yeah. that, to think that, that pretzels were a better choice than, than like lean pork or something like that. Um, but, but that was very much the, the, the school of thought that I was raised in. Um, but yeah, nutrition has kind of moved away from that, that fat carbohydrate paradigm and more towards whole foods over the course of the last little while. And this is kind of more, this bolsters that a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned that paradigm because as you were talking, I realized I almost still have that same mentality. Oh, I, to- I, t- I totally Even, carry it with me. Yeah. Like if, if you were to ask me to write down, you know, I, I wouldn't say, oh, you know, yay to, you know, I, I, w- I wouldn't write out that paradigm, so to speak, if you asked me directly. But in, in my own decision making in the grocery store, in the restaurant, yeah. in the, the break room at work, I still totally operate with that mentality of pretzels are good, lean meat is bad, for example. Right. And that right. It's, it's funny how those frameworks died that i mean those dinosaurs don't die so yeah oh yeah i mean you 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 steep yourself in those ways of thinking and they're hard to shed you know um what is better for you an avocado or or a pack of starburst i mean it's it's you can't really say straight up okay what's a better food because you know if you're trying to fuel yourself during a marathon you're probably better off with starburst than you are with avocados um but but at the same time for me it was like an all-time thing a pack of starburst has five grams of fat in the entire thing right and so so for me i was like oh that's a low-fat food good you know whereas an avocado has a lot of so-called good fat in it um, and, and so I, I never ate avocados because, because they were a bad food because I was coming out of what makes a good food, high carbohydrates, low fats. Right. Um, and whereas I think that in almost all contexts, we could argue that avocados are a far better food for you than, uh, than, than starburst. Um, right. but that's an interesting, I like that. I like that comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Analogy. But I mean, it, but I mean, and it sounds ridiculous, but, but that's, that's very much what I was steeped in and what I was raised to think. Um, all right. So let's talk about some, some, some actual news here. I, I noticed that, that um, as I was kind of trolling around and looking for news and I was thinking about the news that I've read over the course of the last short while here, the first couple of weeks of January, the last couple of weeks of December, I mean, so like we said, the Houston Marathon is today, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the, the Miami Marathon is next week. The Tour Down Under 
um, is going on right now, which is the first big cycling race of the year. Mm -hmm. Um, That's going on right now. But for the most part, a lot of the news inside the endurance community is kind of similar to what we talked about before. It's either looking back or it's looking forward. Yeah. And so like the news we're going to talk about today, a lot of it was people looking back at 2018 or people looking forward to some of the big races and big things happening in 2019, right? Um, and so kind of with that in mind, the first piece of news I'll share um, is is a list that was put out by ESPN that some of y'all might have seen. Um, and it was a list of the so-called most dominant athletes. Uh, and they listed 20 people that they said are the most dominant athletes of 2018. Um, now, spoiler alert, the number one most dominant athlete was Simone Biles. Um, and they found that the gymnast Simone Biles um, uh, was just – head and shoulders above everybody else in women's gymnastics um, and head and shoulders again above everybody else in the history of women's gymnastics. So, so they named her the most dominant athlete in her sport uh, in 2018. And they put her on the cover and had a big, long cover story about her in ESPN magazine. Um, uh, and number two was Elliot Kipchoge, mm-hmm. um, which – when we think about it, that makes sense. And in, in writing about him, they put there's fast, there's really fast, and then there's Kipchoge over 26.2 miles, um, which, which, which I like, which I appreciate. Now, um, real quick here, they actually use some methodology. They actually use an algorithm here. Um, and, and they describe their algorithm by saying, we started by grading athletes by the strongest performance measures available in their sport over the most recently completed season, including time scores, earnings, and wherever possible, advanced metrics. Then, to put those achievements into historical perspective, we compared the top athletes in a sport to the best in their field each year since 1998 and adjusted the results to put those athletes into one common baseline, yielding our ratings. So what does Simone Biles' dominant score of 3.25 mean? In 2018, she was 3.25 standard deviations better than the typical top four performer in all-around women's gymnastics since 1998, rendering her the year's most dominant pro athlete. Now, to take just a second there, 3.25 standard deviations better than the typical top four performer. That's actually pretty profound. And, and I don't want to go too deep into like quantitative research and, and statistical analysis and all that sort of thing. But, but to, to say that you're 3.25 standard deviations ahead of the typical very best in the world is kind of incredible. Um, for Elliot Kipchoge, they said he was 2.355 uh, standard deviations better than other folks in his sport. Jeez. Um, and so, yeah, amazing and to me. So the big takeaway from this one, just kind of looking at that and, and their analysis, I mean, they did some analysis and of course you can, you can quibble with their, with their methods. And, and I'm sure that, that some folks probably could and would, would, would have legitimate complaints about it. To me, it reminds me of that Elliot Kipchoge hot takes that we did, that we talked about where both you and I kind of, kind of said, you know, people are on the mistaken impression that, oh, well, Elliot Kipchoge just got to, to 201.39. That means that somebody else is going to break two hours just right around the corner here. And both you and I were like, no way, dude. Yeah. I mean, he might. Um, you know, he might take off another 100 seconds, even though, I mean, that's a huge chunk of time to chop off. Uh, but we're going to talk about the London Marathon here in just a minute. Um, you know, he might. But the idea that, that, oh, well, he's done it now. And so now somebody else is going to just kind of go on through there. No, you have to realize how much better he is than everybody else. Um, and, and this to me demonstrates how much better he is than everybody else in a, in a more quantitative way. What do you think? Uh, I think that's, I have several things to say. One, to be 2.3 standard deviations ahead of a top four performer is mind boggling. For the last 20 years. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I, I don't remember much about statistics from like high school and college, but I mean, just 
one or two standard deviations is like, I mean, that's what, 95% better? Yeah, exactly. So speak. Yeah. Um, two standard deviations is covers, two standard deviations covers like 98% of all data. Okay, there we go. Um, and he's more than two. <laughs> right, so, I mean, it just further kind of, you know, adds another argument that he is, you know, just as great as we think he is. It also kind of, as you said, it builds on the argument that once he is done, we probably don't have another one coming around the corner. Right. In a lot of other sports where your greatness is defined by your comparison to another player, right? You know, in basketball, hockey, football, soccer, whatever, you know, where it's, you know, you're just trying to beat the other player. You know, there's always a next person coming up, you know, a next great quarterback, a next great point guard, et cetera. But in running where you're really facing gravity or you're really, that's what you're, you're trying to defeat, so yeah. to speak. We can go stretches without having anybody yeah. who reach the same levels as, you know, a, a previous um, athlete or a previous great. Yeah. And so far, we have not seen anybody on the horizon as good as him or as strong as him. Yeah, I mean, there's some people on the distant horizon, but it's still distant. I mean, it's important that when you think of Elia Kipchoge to think about the fact that, that he won a world championship in the 5K, in the 5,000 meters in 2003. So it's not like he just sort of came out of nowhere. I mean, he was a great short-distance 5K runner. He ran under 13 minutes, well under 13 minutes for, for 5K. Um, good enough that he actually was able to, to, uh, to win a world championship back in 2003. Um, as recently as like 2012, I was watching a video and I shared it with somebody on, on Facebook. Um, he was facing off against Mo Farah in an indoor two-mile, and he outkicked Mo Farah in a two-mile race, and that was 2012. Right. right. And so so it's not as if he's just like some guy that's like, oh, wait, he's burst onto the marathon scene. Um, you know, he was he was well respected and well known inside running circles for a long time, then moved up to the marathon. And it turns out he's actually better at that than anything else. Right. Um, and so it stands to reason that if anybody's going to be as good or better than he is they need to have that same old, that same type of, of, of development. And so to me, if, if you want to talk about, okay, who's going to be the next Elliot Kipchoge, you have to look at who's, who has won the 5K and the 10K in the Olympics and the World Championships over the course of the past four or five years. And then maybe plan for, okay, maybe 10 years from now, they'll be ready to roll. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> you know? a good way to look at it. Um, and so, so, yeah, we'll see. I mean, there's a couple of folks, like we've said, they're, they're on the horizon. We've talked about them a little bit before. Um, but, um, but yeah, this to me, I, I just felt like it, it, in some ways it codified, it quantified what it is that we already kind of know about him and that he's a, a once in a generation marathoner. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, also not to be outdone by the way, sports illustrated, um, they did their fittest athletes. They did 50 fittest athletes of 2018. Uh, they published here at the outset. Uh, they were a little bit less quantitative. They said they, they, they consulted a panel of trainers, exercise physiologists, and performance experts to evaluate athletes on the following criteria. Performances over the last 12 months, demands and risks of their respective sports, durability, training regimens, and other physical benchmarks, including power, speed, strength, agility, endurance, flexibility, and more. So much more much more subjective, if you will. Yeah. Um, but interestingly enough, eight runners actually made it onto that list of top 50. So, so more, even though it was more subjective, more runners were actually on the list. And also it was fittest, not most dominant. But uh, Jim Walmsley, who uh, set the course record at Western States this year, was number 23. Elliot Kipchoge was number 21. I don't know how you say the greatest all-time marathoner was only the 21st fittest person in the world last year. <laughs> you know? Um, but Mary Katani, uh, who won New York and who ran that brilliant 
brilliant negative split in New York, uh, who we're going to talk about more here in just a minute. She was number 14. Kasia Semenya, who we've talked about in a different context, the 800-meter runner from South Africa who's been kind of controversial. Um, she's 13. Uh, Courtney DeWalter, who we've also talked about, the ultra runner, was number 12. Emma Coburn, the steeplechaser from the United States, was number 9. Gwen Jorgensen was number 5. Moving right along, uh, and Dina Asher Smith was uh, was number four. Dina Asher Smith is a British sprinter in the hundred, uh, two hundred, and, and four by one hundred. Um, for what it's worth, number one was a football player um, from the New York Giants, a guy named Saquon Barkley. Do you know him? You would know him from the Visa commercials. Yeah, I don't see. We cut the cords. I don't even see commercials anymore. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, I do know him. Um, yeah, he's a phenomenal athlete. Uh, that w- those were weird categories too, because they said something about like you you. They based on like the risk that your body takes. Yeah, in the demands and risks of their respective sports. I, I don't even know how you compare like marathon running to a sport yeah, where there's a collision. Yeah, yeah I, yeah, I feel like that's the. Well, I mean, in marathon running, you're colliding your feet with the ground. Yeah. Um, you know, and 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 highest rate of injury of any high school sport in the United States is girls cross country. So, I mean, you know, clearly it's risky. Yeah. Right, but yeah. I think my big takeaway from that was. The fact that there were eight runners in that list is mind blowing to me. That would if they did the same poll <laughs> ten years ago, there'd be like three. And if they Tops. did it if they did it twenty years ago, there'd be zero, no questions asked. Mm. Um and it does show and we've talked about this before on the podcast, how much the sport of running is people are more aware of running, of how demanding it can be, how much it really is a truly athletic endeavor. I mean, it is yeah. something that requires the athlete to really kind of um, devote their mind, body, and spirit to one singular task for a very long time. To not just a one singular task, but one singular physically demanding task. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that and that runners are are good athletes. Right. You know, I, I think that there's this um, there's this mistaken impression um, that that people come to running because they fail in other sports. Yeah. Um, and and there's probably a grain of truth in that. Um, the grain of truth in that is. It, on a high school level, it is a sport where they don't cut you for the most part. Yeah. There, there are some exceptions. Like I, there's one local high school where they had like a hundred female runners, and the coach it was like one single coach, and he's like, I don't even have enough buses. Like we need to cut it off somewhere. Okay. But for the most part, it's no cut. And so then there is an element of that in high school where it's folks who want to be active, but wouldn't get playing time in another sport. Right. But to your point. That's not Elliot Kipchoge. <laughs> right, right. Like, and and and, I, and don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that Elliot Kipchoge would be a world class soccer player if he had chosen to play soccer. But what I what, what the point I am going to make is that that really good runners tend to be really good general athletes. Yeah. Um, as they tend to t- tend to be the people who could excel at, at a lot of other sports. Now, again, not necessarily to the same level that they are excelling as runners. I'm not right. trying to say a world class runner would be a world class basketball player. I'm not trying to say that at all. Elliot Kipchoge is what five six or something five seven right. he's a lot shorter than he appears when you actually see him running for one thing he's among a bunch of other short people yeah. uh, but for another thing he just towers so much i mean he's just you know he's the man you know and so, so he looms so large in our imagination that when you see him he looks like he's 20 feet tall um but anyway um but but yeah he's a small guy um right but uh but anyway um but i i i am certain that elliot kipchoge has uh, a lot of sp- agility and and has good hand-eye coordination and all sorts of other things that that would make him uh that you need in other sports not only that but like there is a basic level of speed and strength that you have to have to be a good runner Mm -hmm. i mean that sounds very basic but like you have to be 
you have to be muscularly toned. You have to have muscles that can generate a lot of force and a yeah. lot of explosive power to you know propel yourself off the ground and move at the rate of speed you need to to be a good runner yeah now once again that doesn't mean you would be an exceptional soccer player but it means you could probably hold your own especially at like the high school level right right um oh yeah i have many stories of that so i'll just tell you a kind of a quick anecdote um i've, I've played in a bunch of softball leagues mm-hmm. and generally been one of the leaders in home runs right which doesn't make sense considering i i mean i'm I look like a baseball bat. I'm just a, <laughs> straight up and down here. And it always surprises people. And I've actually, uh, there was a friend of mine in grad school who was the same thing. He ran in college and then he joined like a, a softball league or something. And same thing was knocking out home runs. And it's, it's because you do still have to require the kind of muscular strength and explosiveness to kind of really swing the bat quickly, you know, generate a lot of force and kind of power through the ball. Yeah. Once again, you're not going to be a professional. Mm-hmm. But compared to the average person, it's it looks a lot different than just your average Joe big guy right, uh, right. who thinks they can just kind of show up there and, and meet their way through. For sure, for sure. And that's exactly my point. I've actually thought a lot about this in, with myself when it comes to weightlifting this year, mm-hmm. last year. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm still percolating on this, and so maybe we'll talk about it more later on this year. Um, but But – I like a lot of the the strength work that I'm doing right now because I feel like it's building my general athleticism. Oh, definitely. Um, as opposed to just, you know, my ability, just rather than just straight up making me stronger, you know, because I feel like movements like deadlifts and, and, um, and like kettlebell swings and things like that, I, I feel like they improve my overall athleticism um, as opposed to, uh, you know, just sort of squats and leg extensions. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I'm, I'm still percolating on that and, and need to do some research on it. We'll talk maybe about more about it later on. Um, tell us one of your pieces of news. Yeah. My piece of news I'm pulling it up right now. Uh, the Boston marathon e- announced their elite field. Yeah. So um, looking, so looking forward now, <laughs> looking forward. Yeah. Now we're looking forward. Um, and, and I'll make it quick cause there weren't too, too many surprises. Um, the kind of the big headliners for the men were Dathan Ritzenhain and Abdi Abdurrahman. I don't know if I quite said that. Abdi quite Rahim. Right. Abdi Rahim. My apologies. And then one of my personal who is who is forty three years old. I want to say yes, he is. So yeah. forty three. Yeah. And then one of my personal favorites, uh, Tim Ritchie. So yeah. the men, there's not too too much to talk about. Uh, the kind of the big favorite right now looks like Ritzenhain. I would say. Um, I don't know. He's pretty old. He, he is. He, but he, he's knocking on the door of forty himself at this point, right? Yeah, I believe he's thirty seven okay. at this point. So, um, but but to your point, it's it is. Nowhere near as strong as the women's field, mm-hmm. which right now currently has Jordan Hesse, Desiree Linden, Sarah Hall, Lindsay Flanagan, mm. not Shailene Flanagan, but Lindsay Flanagan, although I don't believe they're related, Sarah Crouch, and Sarah Sellers. Okay. So a lot of different, very strong. Um, so let me backtrack and say uh, the theme continues where the men tend to have one or two really strong runners. You know, and then there's a drop off, whereas the women field just continues to be stacked in a lot of these major marathons and with American marathons and American running specifically. Mm-hmm. And and there and there tends to be a very strong American field at the Boston Marathon. Correct. Um, which is great. I mean, and, and Boston pays Americans higher appearance fees and they pay foreign runners. And, and so I, I'm, I'm not going to I don't have a problem with that. Um, I do think, though, that that, you know, and we talked about this a little bit last year, that if you know, we tend to look at the straight up times that Americans run, both the men and the women, um, particularly the men. And we tend to say, oh, well, their times are so much slower than, than what all these other athletes around the world are doing. Well, that's in part, keep in mind, because the best athletes we have tend to run courses like Boston, 
where they get these really high appearance fees and where they get a lot of prestige mm-hmm. and recognition for doing it. But that's not a super fast course unless there's a massive tailwind like there was like in 2011. Um, and so, so yeah, you can't expect, you know, the American men to, to really do a whole lot of fast running this year. Um, given that, that most of them are, or a lot of them are going to be in Boston here. And then the rest of them, the rest mm-hmm. of the year, they're probably just going to be kind of backing off and reloading, getting ready for the Olympic trials in February 29th of next year. And I think that's, you, you hit the nail on the head where a lot of folks are, are looking towards a bigger goal here a year from now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And then of course, one final piece of note, you, you may have noticed, I did not mention Shailene Flanagan and that's because she will not be running in Boston this year, which is a big deal. It is a big deal. She still has not formally announced the retirement, but this is another, um, kind of piece of evidence that we might have seen the last, uh, of her kind of big marathon goals or, or marathons yeah. that she would run and race and go for the win. Yeah. We didn't, uh, we didn't, you didn't say Galen Rupp either. I did not. Um, which, which I think is interesting as well, because the other big marathon in the spring is London, which we're going to talk about here in just a second. Um, and he's not signed up for London. So so not real sure what, what, what he has in mind here. Um, so let's talk about that London Elite Field. So they, they, they also announced the London Elite Fields uh, over the course of the past week or so here. Um, and the London Marathon being right about the same time, only about a week difference between Boston and London, as a matter of fact. Another world marathon major. Um, the current women's world record was run by Paula Radcliffe about 10 years ago on the London course. Um, and um, Dina Castor won back in the day in London. But one of the fastest courses in the world. Um, and they've assembled kind of a mind-blowingly good women's field. Um, and I was reading something on letsrun.com that said, said that we pretty much say this every year. It's the best field ever. It's the best field ever. And yet somehow they continue to make the fields better and better and better at London. So yeah, kudos to them. Uh, but to start with the women, it contains the reigning champions of five of the six world marathon majors from last year. <laughs> and so, you know, Tokyo, Boston, London, New York, Berlin, and Chicago. Like those six world marathon majors, five of the champions of those six races last year are going to be all in London this April. The only one who's not is the one that you just mentioned. Des Linden is going to be going back to Boston in order to defend her title in Boston, um, which is not a big surprise there. Um, in addition, no women's race has ever had four women with sub 219 PRs in the race. Um, no one has ever had four. The most it's ever been in a single marathon has been three. London this year has five, five women in the race whose PRs are better than, than 219. Um, even better, all of them ran their PRs in the last couple of years here. Um, it contains uh, four of the five fastest women of all time. Four of the five fastest women of, of all time. Uh, Mary Katani, Turanesh Dababa, Gladys Chirono, and Vivian Chariot. Um, only Paula Radcliffe, the world record holder, um, who set the world record on this course uh, back in the day. Uh, she's the only one of the top five fastest women of all time who's not running. So number two, three, four, and five are all running. And they're all, make no mistake, going to be shooting for that record of Paula Radcliffe. Um, so super exciting race there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, in addition, American Molly Huddle is going to be in the women's field, who you all know I'm a big fan of Molly Huddle. Uh, she is not going to Boston. She's going to London. Um, and so in my mind, I mean, she's the she's the uh, American record holder in the 10,000 meters. She's American record holder in the half marathon. Clearly, she has her eyes on trying to run fast. Um, and so I, I, I would like to see that. I'd very much like to see that. Um, what do you think? Yeah, we're looking forward to this London field, um, or this London race, I should say. Yeah, It's going to be phenomenal. Um, a lot of people running very fast. And as we've said on this podcast before, it's not always about you know the one singular athlete who can 
put in a great time. As much fun as Eli Kipchoge is, um, a lot of times the best performances can come when there's a lot of fast people trying to run fast together. For sure, for uh, sure. You know, or I, instead of saying maybe run fast together, but run fast together in the same race against one another. Yeah, yeah. And we'll see. I mean, you know, we, we talked last year about how sometimes there were just two uh, aggressive. Uh, both the men and the women were a little bit too aggressive last mm-hmm. year in London, just going after that record. Um, and so, so this year we'll see if they they tend to go out a little bit more on 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 pace. But I mean, Paula Radcliffe ran two fifteen. I mean, that's just amazing. That's incredible. Um, and so, but there are four women who have run sub two nineteen that are all going to be in the same group um, uh, racing. So, so we'll see. Um, and Molly Huddle, if anything. Molly Huddle might suffer a little bit to because if she's trying to run between 220 and 222, she might not have a whole lot of people to run with because that front group is going to be three or four minutes in front of her. That's a good so, point. So, so, um, and then there's she's as weird as that sounds, she's kind of in a gray area because she's super fast but not super duper fast. Um, and so she's not running mid 220s or 230. Um, she's not running 235 like Gwen Jorgensen. Um, um, two thirty six actually. You just threw that out there just to note that. Just you know, that's all. Just to note, yeah, just to note that Molly Huddle is fifteen minutes faster than 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 Gwen Jorgensen, but everybody gives Gwen Jorgensen attention. Um, but uh, but um, we'll have to see whether she kind of falls in that gray area there. I hope she'll have somebody to run with, and I really really would like to see her have a great marathon, a great breakthrough marathon. Uh, then in the men's field in London, you have Elliot Kipchoge. He's going for his fourth straight win. Um, and if he were to win for the fourth time in a row in London, he would be the first person ever to win four straight London marathons, um, which that in and of itself shows how dominant he is. Um, Mo Farah is in the field, um, who is a multi-time world champion from Great Britain, Great Britain's favorite son, um, won the Chicago Marathon this past, uh, this past fall. Uh, in all, there are eight men who have broken 205. Um, so eight guys under 205. Um, and so Elliot Kipchoge obviously leads that group there. Um, but you know, if he has a slightly off day and runs two Oh three 30, um, there's somebody else who, who could potentially beat him in that field. And so, um, so yeah, we'll have to see, we'll have to see. Uh, and then as far as the Americans go, Chris Derrick, um, is in the field. Um, he's run 61 minutes for, for half marathon. He hasn't quite broken through at the marathon level yet. Um, but, but we'll see if he does. Um, Chris Derrick probably has the potential to, to be the fastest U.S. marathoner of 2019, given that most other U.S. marathoners are, are uh, in the spring here running slower marathons in, in Boston and other places, and then probably not a whole lot of folks running in the fall as they get ready for that February 29th Olympic Trials Marathon in 2020 in Atlanta, GA. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thoughts about the men's field there, Patrick? Well, with Chris Derrick uh, specifically, my thoughts were went to an old uh, quote from, I believe it was The Art of War, he said the best way to win a war is to simply pick the right ones. <laughs> Sometimes the best the best way to win a race is to pick the one where the, the top performers aren't necessarily there. Yeah, right um, but no, it, it, there's not too, too much to add other than, um, first of all, you talk about eight people under 205 in one yeah. field. Yeah. Could you imagine if it goes chalk and there's some poor guy that runs a 204 and finishes eighth? Right. <laughs> that would be awful. Yeah. Um, yeah. I not mean, even like top three in their age yeah, group. Yeah. Particularly if you consider that that two oh like sub 205, that would have been the world record. What like in 2010 maybe? Right. I, mean, I don't I don't have it in front of me. But when was the first time somebody ran under 2005 or under 205 in a marathon? It wasn't that long ago. Mm-hmm. Um. And so so yeah, which is which is just amazing. And then. So yeah, if, if if it if it goes according to the stats, somebody could could run two oh four and finish eighth. Ninth. Eighth. Yeah. I mean just incredible. 
Amazing. Uh, you remember last year at this race, they went out under 14 minutes for the first 5K. Um, and so Elliot Kipchoge was still able to hang on better than everybody else and win, um, but certainly right. obviously slowed down a little bit. So, yeah, Whew. yeah, we'll see. All right, let's talk about some research. Mm-hmm. You start. All right, we'll do. So you may remember that last week uh, when talking about, you know, getting started on a training program, whether you're a new runner, you know, a, a, you know, an experienced runner, we talked about how to select a shoe, right? How to select a good pair of shoes. And, you know, w- if you go into a big box store, you know, there's usually a, just a giant wall of options. And if you go to the chain running specialty store, you know, you're often confronted with an assortment of video treadmill gadgets, you know, things to stand on, like, you know, models of like what, you know, the different foot profiles look like. And for a lot of folks, that can be overwhelming. I can tell you, I don't even know what it all means sometimes when I go into those stores. Um, And there's no arguing that a good shoe fitting is beneficial, right? I mean, no one would argue that a pair of, you know, army combat boots are just as well as, you know, a pair of running shoes for putting in your mileage. Right. Um, But a lot of folks can feel very... um, you know, intimidated when they see all the different options on the wall, when they see kind of all of the uh, different profiles uh, that they could select from. And, you know, unless you're kind of a shoe nerd or someone who really dives into the details because you're a product manager or, you know, in sales at a shoe company, then when you read about the differences, it can be, or the different specifications, the different shoes, it can be kind of hard to know, what am I looking at? What am I reading about? Sure. Um, and we've talked, which is, which is, by the way, one of the reasons why we always tell people to go to running specialty stores because they can help because they can help with that. Yeah. I mean, whereas, and nothing against big box stores, um, and the majority of, of, of running shoes are bought at like Macy's and stuff. Um, but, uh, the chances are good that, that your standard big box store employee knows about as much about shoes as you do, if not less. So anyway, keep going. Right. And we've talked about a study from a few years ago, which was a research compilation, which offers the idea that your body or your foot will intuitively self-select the preferred movement path. You will kind of self-select the best running shoe for you, um, in essence, because the one that is the most comfortable is likely the best option for you, which is nice, right? Usually yeah. in life, we talk about nutrition, where it's like, oh, the, the one that's best for you is <laughs> the, the one opposite. that doesn't taste the, the best, right? <laughs> yeah. Don't eat the candy, eat the broccoli. Yeah. Um, Don't eat the Starburst, eat the avocado. Fortunately, both of those are tasty. Anyway, keep going. Exactly. But anyways, so we've talked about that one in passing. Well, this study that I'm t- going to talk about today really kind of adds to that basic idea that the one thing you should look for or you, one thing you should think about, your one kind of evaluation criteria when, when searching for a pair of running shoes is how comfortable they are. And by when I say that the one evaluation criteria, I should say the most important, right? Or kind of the one okay. that's the most top of mind. So the the study um, or the title of this study is Relationship Between Footwear Comfort of Shoe Inserts and Anthropometric and Sensory Factors. Long story short, what they wanted to look at is how the comfort of shoe inserts, you know, what, could that be predictive for injury incidents right. moving forward? right. So they recruited 206 military personnel, which, by the way, the military has obviously been a big source of research for, you know, shoe comfort and um, the effects of shoes on injuries for obvious reasons, because they want to be able to provide um, soldiers with the footwear needed to prevent, you know, them from being injured. Right. So, you know, they assess um, footwear comfort, you know, those who had inserts, those who did not. And then for those that that had inserts, they said, all right, well, on a scale of like one to ten, how comfortable are your shoes? Uh, and then they looked at injury frequency moving forward, and they found that shoe inserts of different shapes, different sizes, different materials, all of them, if they were rated as comfortable, there was 
you know, a much lesser um, chance of injury. If they were rated as un more uncomfortable, there's obviously a higher rate of injury. So this is obviously a very basic study, right? They're not kind of looking at, um, they're not going too, too detailed, but it does continue to kind of draw a link between injury frequency reduction and the comfort you feel when you are running or walking in your shoes. Um, and I think that is something that we kind of need to hone in on because, like I said, a lot of times, you know, we like to think that there's a, a greater answer, maybe a more scientific answer, so to speak, or that we need to fit a certain profile or that we really need to kind of dig deep. When, you know, but with this particular decision point for, for finding good shoes, for finding shoes that will, you know, decrease your rate of injury, a lot of times the best thing you can do is just go for a short run in them and then pick the ones that feel the most comfortable to you. And that's right included on. for the shoe inserts as well. So for the shoes and the shoe inserts. And then, of course, I do just need to throw in the other plug that we mentioned last week, and that is if you're going to get shoe inserts, please get them from a podiatrist. Do not just get the off-the-shelf Dr. Scholl's version. Unless maybe the Dr. Scholl's off-the-shelf version are really, really comfortable. Potentially. <laughs> you know, no, but, th but this, this kind of falls back to, to what I was saying last week, that, that in addition to the fact that the employees at a running specialty store are going to be well-trained and are probably going to be runners themselves um, and, and are going to know a lot about the latest trends inside the, the, the running industry, um, in addition to that, you also will get to run around in, in the shoes. Um, and, that's, and that's saying a lot. I mean, I, I, I bought a pair of shoes this years and years ago. Um, at a Foot Locker one time um, in the mall. Um, and, and I said to the guy, can I run around him in a little bit? And he's like, uh, okay. And he probably thinks you're going to run off with him. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and so, so ultimately I handed him my wallet so I could go out in the hallway, you know, outside of the store and, and run back and forth just a little bit and still didn't get like a full extensive, you know, run around the parking lot type feeling that you would get at a running specialty store. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, that makes a big difference. Um, and so, so yeah, you, you can truly assess their comfort and in turn, perhaps according to the study, assess their, uh, their, their ability to prevent injuries in you. If you, uh, if you get a good sense of how comfortable they are. And I kind of take another step further too. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure you have this a lot where, where you'll have a coworker say, all right, well, what shoe should I get? Right. right. I hear you're a runner. What should I get? You know, we all know that comfort is subjective and you know, it's subject specific, right? So there's not one pair of shoes. It's just the greatest for everyone. So with that in mind, only the person wearing the shoes can confidently choose the most appropriate one for them. Right. So I always tell them just what we just said just now. Go to a store, run around in them, find what's most comfortable try for you. Try a bunch. Do not simply try the one that, I, that I'm wearing. Do right. not, you know, you may start that as a base, right? Since you know, hey, this, this person runs in it. I don't know anything about running shoes, so here's just a nice starter. Right. But um, you certainly should not say, oh, this, you know, a friend of mine is a runner. I'll just order off Amazon the pair that they have. Right. Yeah, for sure. Very good. Very good. All right. So mine actually was also done by the military. Um, so mine was done by the U.S. Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine, um, and they're based in Massachusetts, I think. Um, but, but the study that I want to present actually was, they published it in the, uh, journal of medical science and sports exercise last year in November. Um, and it was called two day residence at 2,500 meters to 4,300 meters does not affect subsequent exercise performance at 4,300 meters. Now they were building on a previous study that the same group had done that found that if you spend six days at 7,200 feet, then you'll be able to much improve your performance 
um, if you quickly go to 14,000 feet. Um, now, a little bit more background on this. Um, you know, you and I live at, what, 1,000 feet? Is that about where we are? Yes. Yeah. Um, and so if we were to go to Boulder, Colorado, which is about 5,000 feet, right, about a mile high, um, or if we go to La Paz, Bolivia, which is like 12,000 feet high, right, um, it's we, we would feel that. There would be a much bigger difference. We would physically not be able to perform to the degree that we are, right? And so there's all sorts of, of – uh, studies have been done over the course of the past two or three decades um, to to determine exactly the best way to incorporate altitude training into uh, a, a distance runner's arsenal. So, so like if you and I, for example, or or a cyclist arsenal or a triathlete's arsenal, of course. Um, so if you and I were to to go to Boulder, Colorado, at fifty two hundred feet, and we were to do all the same training or attempt to do all the same training at fifty two hundred feet, because there's less air there because it's thinner air and it's higher elevation, the theory is, and, and this has been then been backed up by evidence, that, that um, we would become stronger, right? And then when we return to, to sea level or to 1,000 feet, we would be faster um, because we had become accustomed to having thinner air, right? Um, well, this is actually of concern to the military um, because it's possible that, that um, some strategic... Uh, uh, initiative might be at altitude and it might be that they have to put soldiers at 12,000 feet or 14,000 feet and put them there immediately. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and knowing that if you and I were to go to Boulder or if athletes or soldiers were to go to 7,000, 9,000 feet, they would be affected by that in a way that it might somehow hurt their ability to, to, um, to, to, to operate, to physically perform. Okay. Um, and so, like I said, um, this same group did a study before that said if you go and you spend six days at 7,200 feet, that helps you to acclimate in such a way that you can perform better at 14,000 feet than you would if you just went from sea level to 14,000 feet. Okay? Um, and, and this matters for endurance athletes because a lot of us kind of end up racing at altitude, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, so, you know, you have Ironman Boulder, for example, which is at, at a mile high. How early do you need to go to, to Boulder in order to be ready for that, right? So what they did is they took six, six volunteers uh, and they had them complete a series of tests, including a five-mile time trial on a treadmill set at a 3% grade. Um, so a difficult uphill run here. Um, and they did it at the Altitude Research Lab at the summit of Pikes Peak in Colorado, uh, which is about 14,000 feet. Now, for the two days prior to the test, they split the subjects into four different groups. They had one group who camped at 8,200 feet, one group who camped at 9,800 feet, one group who camped at 11,500 feet, and then one group who stayed at the research center at 14,000 feet, all for two days. Then they split them even further, and they had half of each of the four groups actually to spend three to four hours a day hiking during that period. And because the idea being that, that maybe you could, it would help you adjust faster if you actually were to tax your lungs and to do some physical activity, right? Um, and alas, they found at the end of this two days, they put them all on the treadmill at 14,000 feet, and they found that all eight of the subgroups produced essentially the identical results in the final testing at 14,000 feet. Um, and so this was a very, very long way of explaining that this research now proves that getting there six days early helps. Getting there two days early does not help. <laughs> That's so, a big difference, too, yeah. when planning your trip. Yeah, absolutely. And so... so if you're doing Ironman Boulder or if you're doing the Pikes Peak Marathon or something else like that, some race at altitude, and you're thinking, okay, when am I going to arrive? 
just know if you arrive two days before the race or less, you're going to struggle with the altitude. If you arrive six days before the race, even if you don't arrive at the full altitude, even if you're a thousand feet lower or something, that's going to help you during the race to acclimatize to the altitude and thereby perform better, right? Four days, that's probably going to be their next study. <laughs> right. They almost want to find out where exactly the, the line is. Exactly. What I found encouraging about that is I was almost worried they would do the study and then re- and then find out, oh, you need to be there for 30 days or something like that. Right. But six, that's a pretty quick... Uh, six days helps. ...rate of, of, of yeah. adaptation. Right. Um, and that's something that, you know, a lot of people could probably find doable. You know, yeah. once again, you know, we're all working under different circumstances, but mm. that is something where if you were at a target race at altitude, that's something to seriously consider. I mean, that's yeah. a, a truly an option versus, oh, you need to be there a month or so before. Right. I'll tell you my personal experience. So my first ever marathon was at the... Uh, Big Cottonwood Marathon. Right. In Utah? In Utah, yeah. And it was, I mean, we were up the canyon. I mean, we were literally looking down, like, we were in the clouds. Like, there were literally, <laughs> um, like, clouds almost, like, blowing through. I mean, it was way up there. And I arrived, you know, brilliantly on my part, I might add, the day before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can tell you, when I got off the plane, I was sick as a dog mm-hmm. immediately. Yeah. And it, it was not, like... Uh, a gradual feeling either. I mean, it was like almost like someone who's seasick all mm-hmm. of a sudden jumping on a rocky boat. Oh, wow. Um, and so luckily, that's by that second day, I at least wasn't, you know, sick. Mm-hmm. But this study does kind of point, at least kind of build the case where you need to really get there mm-hmm. and plan for the altitude because it is something that you do get, accu- I shouldn't say accustomed to, but you can adapt to it. You can acclimatize, yeah, for sure. Six days you can, yeah. two days you can't. And importantly... If you think, oh, I'm only going to get there two days ahead of time, but I'm going to to exercise while I'm there, and that's going to help me acclimatize better, it's not. Yeah. That, that that didn't help. If you, if you say, oh, I'm going to get there, but rather than getting there and laying on the couch, I'm going to get there and I'm going to go hiking, um, or I'm going to ride my bike or something like that, and that's going to, to speed up the acclimatization process, it doesn't, yeah. at least according to this study. Um, the only thing that makes it, makes it any better is just getting there earlier. Six days is early enough. Two days is not quite early enough. Yeah, when they when they publish their study on four days, which again is what I'm guessing is next, uh, we'll be sure to talk about that one as well. All right, very interesting. Final thoughts, Patrick? No, it's good to be back and kind of back to our regular format. So I'm looking forward to the next one. Right on, news and research week done. Uh, thanks everybody for tuning in. We'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. And that'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. Once again, you can reach out to me, George, at george at itlcoaching.com. You can reach out to Patrick, patrick at itlcoaching.com. You can send us an email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at pleasantpodcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Don't forget to reach out to our sponsors as well. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at itlcoaching on Twitter, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. Finally, of course, Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, bluepineappletravel.com, and on Instagram, instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel. Thanks again for joining us, everybody. On behalf of Patrick Ollander, this is George Darden. We'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.